assessment prepared just for your spiritual edification. Alright, adults and young people, we are going to come back to Matthew chapter 7 and we're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. I planned for about eight weeks. I did not realize, you know, I was looking at this week, this is part number 17. My goodness. But, you know, I, I want to be fair to the text. Sometimes I'll go past the text and say, you know what, that really needs explaining. Um, or that, you know, it would be unfair to just sit right over top of that statement. Uh, and these are the words of our Lord. So, uh, I mean, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I want to be very careful about not rushing ahead or rushing ahead of the text. And you never know. Sometimes people are touched by the things that you least plan for, that you least prepare for. So it's important to take a little bit longer look at a closer look. But needless to say, it obliterates the calendar of messages I have planned for the year. So <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where I want to start again next week. All right, Matthew chapter 7 here. And uh, of course, tonight we'll continue our series on the attributes of God. And uh, we're going to take a little bit closer look, certainly at his goodness, uh, if I have time, we'll look at his holiness too, but I think holiness might be a little bit of extra time. Um, some of the attributes we're coming into now, they don't have quite so much volume of text. Uh, holiness does, holiness does. And uh, but we're going to try to hit all of them, and then we'll try to organize them too at the same time, because they're not all part of the same category or dimension. So we'll do that on Sunday night. Uh, next week is the exception, because we'll have our Sunday sing-along. We'll spend some time singing, uh, have a devotional. And uh, the singing, by the way, favorites. If you're not coming to the Sunday sing-along, uh, do come. Do come. We sing favorites. We just pick favorites from the book. And we get to sing them. And we'll sing as much of them as we can. But if we're going to hear a lot of songs, uh, then we can't quite sing every verse to every song. So, And then we'll have a devotional. Uh, which is the best part, and then there's another part that's almost as good as the scriptures and singing, and that is ice cream. We will have ice cream, uh, because I'm convinced there will be ice cream in heaven. I, just, I don't know how it will come from the cops, but we'll see. <laughs> Maybe we won't need it. It will be an ice cream tree. Oh, I don't know. My mind is racing here now. All right, Matthew chapter 7, we digress. Matthew chapter 7, please. We're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount here this morning. And uh, if you did not get one of the bulletins, there is in the bulletin a folder, a little handout, a pamphlet to help you follow along and keep track of our text as you go along. Uh, those that are online do not have that, but they contact the church, and we can get that to them as soon as possible. Those, and some people that miss, they'll actually ask, and we'll put a copy out there uh, for them. We'll put a copy out on the table for them uh, by the other uh, BBC resources. Okay? Uh, Michael read it already, and uh, let me just read verse 21, and then we will pray, and we will get started. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. All right, let's pray. Lord God, there is a very real risk 
of your people leaving here today unconvinced, unchanged, and worst of all, unconcerned. And Father, I pray that you minister now to our hearing. Help us to understand what we are hearing. But then, Father, give us the depth of mind to look at it and say, what am I supposed to do with this? Help us, Father God, again, as James brought us, to not be hearers only, but doers of the word. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Now, Jesus is, and we've said since verse 13, Jesus has been bringing things to a close. And it's interesting because even his conclusion has four points. And we went through the first two points last week, of course. And what we're seeing here is, within the body of text, uh, what we're seeing here is this contrast with what the people were being taught regarding heaven, regarding God's uh, expectations, regarding their responsibility. And Jesus was challenging that, starting from the very beginning, proving that the kingdom of heaven runs by a very different government than the theocracy that the Pharisees and the scribes thought they were administering among the Israelites at the time. And Jesus is putting this great big kind of uh, obvious uh, dichotomy between the two, showing that this is, these two are nothing alike. But these two are nothing alike. What God requires of his people is very different than what the Pharisees are teaching you here. And of course, Matthew, our author, he's proving that Jesus had messianic authority. And he was doing, he gives a series of Jesus' teachings. I mean, the Olivet Discourses one. And so we've been going through just the Sermon on the Mount and studying it a little bit closely and seeing how Matthew is proving that Jesus is the Messiah in chapter 5. We saw that Matthew uh, taught us that Jesus was coming bringing a reform to the practice of God's law. In chapter 6, we saw how the genuine kingdom citizen worships uh, concerned only with the approval of the king. And in chapter 7 here, we're seeing how this individual, in the beginning of chapter 7, we see how this individual treats people, how he lives in the world that he finds himself today. And Jesus then, beginning in verse 13, has been teaching them and showing them, this is how you become the kingdom citizen. It's not by currying the favor of the Pharisees, okay? It's not by some kind of performance or some kind of method. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is a decision that you have to make between truth and error. And of course, Jesus is confronting his audience. Uh, it's funny how many people come to me and they talk to me as though the Sermon on the is very warm and fuzzy. Just a series, a compilation of Jesus' Proverbs. Wrong. This was a finger in the eye of his opposition. But there's nothing warm and fuzzy about it. And here now we see him at the end. He's saying, you need to make up your mind. You have a decision to make. Each and every one of us, we have a decision to make. Now, we saw that this idyllic people, these idyllic principles that govern this kingdom, that govern this, this uh, kingdom that is not a part of our world, but that kingdom then is so different from our own that it provides a paradox. 
It's kind of a confrontation to who we are and where we're at and what we expect regarding our own religiousness. If, if it's fair to call it that, our own religiousness. He said by two gates, uh, he warned us against following spiritual ease. Remember the wide path follows to the wide gate. The narrow path follows to the constricted gate. Uh, it is a hard gate to get through. And Jesus says, don't just follow the rest of the religious crowds. All of chapter 5 through 7, which is one of the things I think stood out to me this time in studying it as compared to other times, is the fact that he's really talking about two different groups of religious or spiritual people. He's really not talking to atheists here, although atheists could benefit from it. He's not talking to agnostics here, although agnostics could certainly benefit from it. He's really talking to two different groups of people. There are those who are self-justified, who feel good about what they are because they've convinced themselves that they should feel good and that they're in God's good favor. And Jesus is saying that's the wrong way. That's the broad way that leads to destruction. The hard way, the difficult way, the constrained way uh, is the way that leads to, remember destination? Life. And of course, its travelers are few. By his next pair or comparison, he presented two trees. As Jesus warned against uh, following false prophets, they had this sinister kind of character. They had this specific kind of result. Jesus said, no matter what they look like, however they present themselves, their fruit always gives them away. You have to look at what it is that they're producing because they are also following to a particular kind of consequence, and that is their own burning, their own destruction. Now, this morning we see actually two petitions. Two petitions. Jesus, there's two, there's different people that are coming to Jesus now, and they're thinking that I'm okay with God, and Jesus said, is saying to them, you have a problem. There's a, the problem is, is that Israel, in many respects, was a nation full of Nicodemuses. Religious but lost. Religious but lost. It was a sad commentary on their day. And so Jesus is warning them against entitled religion. He is warning them against entitled religion. Now, to summarize, this is a warning concerning a failure to do. It's a failure to obey. It's a failure to act on the will of the Father. Jesus is making a, a very clear distinction between a religion that only exists in words as compared to a heart-held faith that, that behaves according to the transformed thinking that comes from a servant, a, a student of the Scriptures, a student of the Bible. Jesus is blowing up that show of faith that is busy in religious orders, but is very superficial. I love hearing testimonies. I so much enjoy hearing testimonies. Uh, some of these people, though, they're kind of nervous, especially when the pastor comes up. Well, I'd like to hear a testimony. They think right away, does he think I'm not saved? No, that's not it at all. If I ask you, tell me how you got saved. I'm not looking to find fault, trust me. And there, I've met a number of people who did not, these are a curious lot, they did not grow up in Christianity, some of them, and they did not grow up in fundamental Baptist 
They continued as they went to churches and tried churches. They kept saying, you know, but something doesn't jive with the scriptures. There's something wrong. They're teaching this, but this is what the scriptures say. And so they'll go to another church and to another church. And eventually, they wind up in one of my churches. That's not a commendation on me. Praise God. But they will say, you know what? We were in these other churches. We would preach one thing, but the scriptures would say another. And they simply knew from the scriptures. They simply knew from reading the scriptures what is false and what is true. The scriptures are enough to themselves. Why? Because God's word will not return void, right? It instructs and teaches us. And so Jesus is blowing up that superficiality. He's saying, listen, you look and sound the part, but you have a problem. First of all, is this in verse 21, you'll notice that there were those people, they wanted to be able to call him Lord, Lord. They wanted to be able to call him Lord, Lord. They were coming to him and they were showing him respect. They were showing him courtesy. And these people were expecting to be treated with favor by God. The problem is, is that calling Jesus Lord, Lord doesn't prove that the speaker is convinced Jesus is the Messiah. You can come up to me and say, Pastor Black, I, you know, a young man can go up to and say, Pastor Black, uh, I am a cow, okay, or I'm a cat. And I might go, well, meow. But I'm looking at you, I'm not convinced that that's what you are, just because you tell me. Just because you say so. All right? I'm simply being courteous. I'm simply being nice. I'm not showing approval for this decision that you have made. Okay, and he's saying here, this speaker is not necessarily convinced that Jesus is Messiah. A person does not speak of a right relationship with the Heavenly Father by simply recognizing that Jesus was a great man. Have you met a lot of people like that? Their lives don't show. I mentioned to you before the shock. I met a lady being carried out of a hotel. So drunk she couldn't walk. And she tried to convince me of how much she loved the Bible under my arm. A lot of people are good at showing Jesus respect. But they're not interested in what it says on the pages. The human mouth has this unusual capacity to speak things that are not necessarily true. And so for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, the speaker has to do more than show respect to Jesus Christ. Those who have treated Christ respectfully need to have more than words if they hope to enter the messianic kingdom. They have to also believe that he is the Messiah. They have to also obey his teaching. That is the difference between a disciple and an unbeliever. And an unbeliever can go by whatever name he wants or she wants. The fact of the matter is, friend, if you are not living by obedience to God's word, by implementing Jesus Christ's life into your own, you live each day haphazardly by your own set of moral codes, you're in trouble. Well, I'm a member of Victory Baptist Church. I don't care. Victory can't save you. I wish it could. But it can't. 
And it doesn't. Why? Because Victory Baptist Church, because Victory's pastor, because Victory's deacons, because Victory's Sunday school teachers, they didn't die on the cross for you. It wasn't their blood, and their blood wasn't sinless. Let me just explode that myth right there. <laughs> their, heart, their lives weren't sinless. There's no way we could save you. And there's this other, this other issue. He says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says also, secondly, there, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. So this person does more than just show Jesus respect. This person has actually, in the name of Jesus, performed great accomplishments. They've done incredible things. Now, this is interesting because is it even possible to perform miracles when a person is, is an unbeliever? Well, you have to remember the war that we fight is a spiritual one. Okay? It is a spiritual one, and we fight against spiritual armies. In the Old Testament, there are numerous false prophets who claim to speak for the Lord. And that's what Deuteronomy was actually saying in testing the, in testing the, the voice of prophets. If what they said didn't come true, then they were not speaking for God, and they were to be stoned. Uh, and obviously, in order to, as, as proof of their authority, they would try to do many different miracles. Okay, some kind of wonder, some kind of surprise, something unnatural, supernatural. The magicians of Egypt even copied to a small extent uh, what Moses and Aaron had done. In the book of Acts, a man named Simon was using sorcery to bewitch the Samaritans and thought that the disciples' wonders were up for sale. Uh, and went to them. Even Satan, to a limited extent, can, in fact, do something akin to miracles. And he's going to do that. He's going to employ the false prophet uh, in the book of Revelation. He's going to employ the false prophet during the tribulation to convince people of his authenticity as God. And, of course, the Antichrist will be the pseudo-Christ, the imposter Christ, and the false prophet will be the substitute Holy Spirit. The problem is, is that even today, many people seem to treat Jesus' name almost like a blank check. And they almost seem to think, they act like they can command anything they want from heaven because they first invoke Jesus' name. I've heard from people, actually, who are convinced that they could raise the dead and heal a terminal illness. Man, I wish that was true. I already, I already know what we would do. We, we, would, we would divide up into three parts, uh, small, medium, large. The small part would go to all of Victory's shut-ins and heal them right on the spot. In Jesus' name, I tell you to get up. And in the second group, we would send all these friends that come from out of state to come here for their medicine. And, and, and we would send them out. They would visit these people, and they would heal them on the spot. And then the larger group of our church, what I would do is I would, uh, we would all go down to uh, the corner of, of Center Street and 4th Avenue and just perch right there. If it was as simple as that. Now, can God heal? Yes, absolutely. Can God heal if I ask Him to? Yes, absolutely, He can. But the fact of the matter is, Paul never got relief from his thorn in the flesh that we know of. He even quit praying about it. I, I, to me, it's funny because I look at that and go, man, how faithless of Paul. That he, I asked the Lord three times. He said, my grace is sufficient. That's the end of that. 
That was enough for Paul. Job didn't get relief from his boils any sooner than the moment that God finished his object lesson to Job, his friends, and Satan. Every aged person was eventually gathered up to his fathers and to his tribe in the scriptures. Of all the disciples, only John was rescued from the hatred of anti-Christian governments that persecuted them. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 11 tells us that there are many dear saints who never found safety from their persecutors. Over and over and over again, we, are, we, are, we discover within the scriptures that there is in fact a glory, a reward to suffering. To suffering persecution, especially in Jesus' name. Now, to be fair to the text here, notice that while these people are making these claims, I can't help but notice two things. Number one, Jesus doesn't dispute the claim. All right, maybe they were. But number two, the text doesn't actually say that the claims are real. So we don't actually know whether or not these claims are qualified as actual miracles. The scriptures only point out that these will claim to have done wonderful things on behalf of the Lord. On behalf of Jesus Christ, and perhaps they have that selfish spirit of Ananias and Sapphira who tried to appear more spiritual than they were. Okay, that's what they were trying to pass off uh, with their giving theirs. They were trying to look like they were more spiritual than they actually were. And of course, they died. They were killed on the spot. The issue is not the claims themselves. The issue is what Jesus Christ meant to that person who is doing wonderful things. We've said it before. Somebody could actually someday come in here making claims to have done many wonders and miracles. And perhaps they could even come down here and show you one. Does that mean we automatically then assume and approve his or her authority? No. Because you do not yet understand whether or not that authority is of God or something else much more sinister. The fact of the matter is many false professors may do great things, but I'll tell you this, they only do it on the outside. The miracle had no significant power on the soul of the person performing it. In other words, these wonder workers may do incredible things, but they do so for superficial glory. Hence then, the need to try the spirits. Hence then, to the need to test those who teach. These people make a fair show, as Matthew Poole, to quote Matthew Poole, a fair show of religion and strictness. And this was, I mean, this, this was the sin of the Pharisees. Remember when uh, chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus challenged his listeners, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. These individuals, these Pharisees, these scribes, they were going around telling people how to live, but they were justifying people in their own unbelief. Of course, Jesus would say that your, that, your, um, that your righteousness had to exceed theirs. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, 
Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, <clears throat> cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. And he goes on, scribes and Pharisees, he continues to indict the scribes and Pharisees over and over again in a series of woes. So you have these two surprises. The person who showed Jesus respect and courtesy and the person who did, who performed some sort of incredible accomplishment on behalf of Jesus. The problem is what they were going to discover was that there was a very harsh reality waiting for them. Many who expect to have the favor of heaven will discover too late that their religious motions do not save them. This person makes a critical error. They presumed all along that God has approved and accepted their miracles, when in fact, He did not. This person might even profess to know Jesus Christ, but they're not doing the will of the Father. Their profession, then, is only a superficial one, because if they were genuinely followers of Jesus Christ, they would have also done the will of the Father. Henceforth, then, when imposter servants come in expecting a reward, God's going to say, whoa, 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 who are you? Yeah, I don't, you're not on our roster. You can leave. I don't know who you ain't. I'm not obligated to you at all. And tragically, here's the hardest part with winning religious people to Christ. The hardest part is that they tragically, they do not heed the warnings. And so they must discover the catastrophe to them. Because they think they're all set. Well, my family church. I have a family church. My family built the church. My family paid for the church. I attend every Sunday. I do this, I do that. I'm a good person. And they go on and they continue to justify themselves all their lives long, never really sure of where they will spend eternity. And they discover the catastrophe much too late. Now look at our text. Look at verse 23. Back at our text here. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. And then will I profess on them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Look at, who gets, look at who is doing the judgment for God the Father. This Jesus of Nazareth. This son of Joseph, Joseph and Mary. He's saying, depart from me, I never knew you. This is another instance of Jesus claiming to be a judge. Which he will be. The Bible confirms it. And he will say that he himself does not know these individual people. What he's talking about are travelers on the wide path, following the crowds to the wide gate. D.A. Carson is helpful volume. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is confrontational with the world. He writes this. What then is the essential characteristic? of the true believer, the genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. It is not loud profession, not spectacular spiritual triumphs, 
not protestations of great spiritual experience. Rather, his chief characteristic is obedience. True believers perform the will of their Father, consistent with their prayer. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. That's the test of genuine belief. Well, we had these two petitions, but we see also Jesus cements the decision by two builders, or two architects, if you prefer. Because architects make critical decisions about the fitness of the material. And so Jesus says here by these two builders, by these two architects, he warns against an eternal kind of neglect. An eternal kind of, of neglect. Now this is a warning, just like the last pair, this is a warning concerning the failure to do or act on the teachings from the Sermon on the Mount. All right, look at verse 24. Well, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man. These sayings of mine. What sayings? Well, at the very least, verse 13 to 27. But I don't believe that it includes chapter 5, chapter 6, in all of chapter 7. It's funny that we sing about the wise man built his house upon the rock. Alright? And the foolish man built his house upon the sand. And we generally use it as kind of a, uh, a euphemism for spiritual life and trusting Jesus Christ. Which is not wrong. It's just very imprecise. Because Jesus is specifically talking about the Sermon on the Mount. If you're a wise person, then you just listen to this sermon and you're going to do something about it. If you are a foolish person, the Greek word there is moros. Sound familiar? Never heard the word moron? A dull or stupid person? A person who is oblivious? Uh, who is hapless? Jesus says, don't be a foolish person. And the foolish person also heard the message. Pay attention to that. The foolish man also heard the message in verse 26. Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. The foolish person was there and heard the sermon. But he left unconvinced. He left unchanged. And worst of all, he left unconcerned. By what he was seeing and what he was hearing there. And so Jesus here, he's saying to them, listen, you have a choice today. You need to conduct your life by the wise man. To do otherwise is to be a foolish man. The wise man conducted his life by the same principles that Jesus just preached. The foolish man ignored what Jesus just said, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying that if you only read the Sermon on the Mount and you don't do something with it, you have not experienced the kingdom. An everlasting torment waits for you instead. Which is interesting because this is very different than how people generally treat the Sermon on the Mount. I told you one man who said, if you want God's favor on your life, you need to repeat the Lord's Prayer every day for 30 days. It's not what the Sermon on the Mount is for. And again, not the Lord's Prayer. That's his model prayer. That's his teaching prayer. That's his instructive prayer. You want to know how the Lord prayed? Go to John chapter 17. Okay? A little bit more lengthy as well. 
But notice here a couple of principles. Number one, the wise man acted rightly towards the Sermon on the Mount and built his life on kingdom principles. And built his life on kingdom principles. What happened is, is that he heard Jesus' teachings and then considered them deeply. He thought about them. He thought about texts such as, um, if, if a man look upon a woman to lust after her. He thought about the fact that Jesus said that he had fulfilled the scriptures. He, he built his life on principles such as, judge not. He built his life on the golden rule, which we said is not simply a, a, a hallmark or a euphemism for being nice to strangers. It actually requires a particular worldview. To, to obey the golden rule, you have to have the mindset of the Father. This individual, he considered deeply, he thought deeply about the fact that we are to live according to the life of the Father, to his perfections. And because of that, he chose to build his life on the hardness of Jesus' teachings. He saw a stability to it. He saw a strengthen. There's actually, we know a person, um, my family and I, we knew a young man. He was an uh, architect, uh, and his wife was a webmaster, and they were able to build a house in a, on a lot that was impossible. There was a lot for sale on Lake Wapakon, New Jersey, and right in the middle of that lot was the biggest boulder you've ever seen. And what happened is, is it sat forever, nobody buy it, and this architect said, I think I can do something like that. And he went in there, and would you believe he built that whole house around and on the rock. And he showed me, he says, you want to see this? I said, yeah. He took me down into his basement, which wasn't a basement. It was a great big rock room. All right, that's what it was. It had a great big rock. And sure enough, this house was fastened to this rock. Boy, I hope that, that rock never decides to go just like that. But it was impressive. It was incredible. And we used to joke that that house was never going anywhere. That house was built on the rock, to say the least. And so this individual in this, in this passage, he knows what that's like. But you've got to remember, rock is harder material. It's harder to work with. It's hard on you. But because of that, he was rewarded for his obedience. <laughs> Not like the foolish man. Not like the foolish man who ignored the Sermon on the Mount and built his spiritual life by his own ideas. He said, I don't want to work with that rock. I see something else that will work better for me. So in other words, this individual, what he did is he heard Jesus' teachings but chose to work against prudence. Remember, prudence sees the danger and turns out of the way. Isn't that what Proverbs says? This guy heard the, heard the clarion call of the one who was warning, Jesus Christ. And he says, ah, that's not for me. And so what he did is he built his life on weak, unstable material. Sand. Sand is like stone. It's made from the same material as stone. But really, sand is an abundance of much too fine a stone. And therein lies its weakness. And I understand that there actually there are certain sands for certain applications and you don't mix the two. And the opportunity to build a house with a man, and he said to me right over there, see that house? I said, yeah. He said, they had to jack that house up. 
and redo the foundation. I said, why? He said, well, the homeowner who built the house found a big sand pit in his yard. And he thought, well, I'm paying for sand. I got sand. And it was a wrong aggregate. And over time, the mortar in between the blocks of his foundation started to come apart. And his house started to, they started to crumble from the bottom, from the bottom up. Uh, I didn't know it. I thought sand was sand. But you know what? Sand is a terrible building material unless it's used in just the right way. And obviously, in Jesus' culture, nobody knew about cement just yet. All right? Cement is more than just sand anyway. But notice what our text says. Look there. He says, The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house that fell not. For it is found upon a rock. Verse 26, Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. It's, it's literally, the Greek word is just like beach sand. Verse 27, The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. Notice the adverb describing the fall. Great was the fall. Great was the fall. There's this tragedy. He had a great tragedy. He suffered, suffered a great tragedy for his sufferings. Because he ignored chapters 5, 6, and 7. Well, we're supposed to notice the response. Matthew wants us to notice the response to Jesus' message. And of course, Jesus' teaching provoked a specific response from the people there. Look at verse 28. Michael read a little bit ago. And it came to pass when Jesus said, End of these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. For two reasons. All right? Astonishment. For two reasons, Matthew wants us to notice the reaction of Jesus' teaching. Letter A, Jesus taught a doctrine that differed with the rabbinical authority. He was different than the other rabbis. He had skill from the superior authority. What the rabbis taught in theory, Jesus understood from first-hand knowledge. So Jesus taught a different doctrine. A doctrine that differed with expert testimony. But what did Jesus possibly have against the scribes. The problem with the scribes is that they use their pens to make themselves think. As they recorded the scriptures, as they copied the scriptures, they were, they were the day and age's copy machines. And they would record the Pentateuch, we call it. They would call it the Torah. Okay, you didn't have a printing press to turn these things out. And so what would happen is these guys, they would sit and they would record it and they became the lawyers. When you had a question about the scriptures, you went to a scribe. What did the scriptures say? And you would like to believe that somebody who translates, you know, two, three, four Torahs in a year, that he would know something about the scriptures, right? And the problem is, and the indictment of Jeremiah, we saw it over in Matthew chapter 23, is that these guys were faithful. And they were using the word of God to justify themselves and to justify, justify people for payment. And, and Jesus was speaking here with an expertise that the scribes did not have. Everybody was shocked. 
So the bottom line here is this. The Sermon on the Mount was a confrontation with a message to those who had used religious means to exclude themselves from obedience to Jesus Christ. It was a sermon for people who didn't know they were hypocrites because they mistakenly thought they were zealous. Friend, is that you? People are fond of saying to me, I'm a spiritual person. And I say to them, well, yeah, you're made in the image of God. That makes sense. Everybody is. The problem is, are you a saved person? Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Now, we're trying to make our point short and simple on the application here. Right, just so it's easy to remember those four points. Number one, get on the right road, right? Get on the narrow path, not the wide one that everybody's following, that everybody's just mindlessly going along with. Get on the right road. Listen to the right people. You don't need to listen to everything that everybody says. There are false prophets. You need to judge what they produce, what comes from them. Thirdly, then, do the right thing. Do the right thing. Now, let me just give you first a disclaimer here, because it's important that you understand. I, we are not from the text. As modern Gentiles saved outside of Israel, we are not being offered the completion of David's kingdom. The, the first thing is saved by the, the Sermon on the they're being offered the church, and of course, we'll join our Jewish siblings in the eternal kingdom where the differences between Jews and Greeks uh, will no longer matter, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Okay, so be careful there. There is an opportunity for some confusion. But... We also must not delude ourselves into thinking God cannot see through our spiritual games. God looks at the heart. God sees your motives. When you go to church simply to be seen and admired, God says you have your own. When you devote your life to the church because it's popular, because it's convenient, because it's good for business, you're not a Christian. When you go through the rituals and the, and the religious motions simply because they make you feel better, my friend, you stand in jeopardy still. We need to be very careful to realize and understand that we will someday stand in front of the Almighty and give an account for what we have done with Jesus Christ. As he said to his friends, whom do you say that I am? And we don't have time to get into it here because it's a whole other sermon. But according to the scriptures, Jesus is the very Son of God. Come in the flesh, bruised, broken, humiliated, humiliated. Dying, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, on the cross, rising again, seen by the twelve and above five. That's the good news of the Sermon on the Mount. 
what, what you and I have to realize is that heaven is closed to those who simply speak kindly of Christ. They have no will to obey Him. They can only speak of the right things because they do not do that. If all we can do and say is the right thing without demonstrable proof of obedience to Christ, we are nothing more than mere hypocrites. And that's what we have been producing even in our churches, our fundamental churches. We are producing young people who know how to speak nicely of Jesus Christ. But he's not in their hearts. And sadly, according to these two gates, these imposters make up the bulk of the religious. Friend, you do harsh. Especially as you're weighing the produce, the results, the fruit of the contemporary church. Again, I would not be so bold to say big churches are apostate. Little churches are right with God. I would never say that. But it ought to concern you when the broad spectrum of evangelicalism has no problem ignoring the sound principles of God's word. Pastors aren't even sure of God created in the earth. Seven literal days. That's a problem. Instead of miracles, let us strive to have this testimony. That men love God, the same is known of Friends, miracles, we might come into an age when miracles begin again. Any wondrous signs and works will happen. The Christian needs to remain unimpressed until there is evident proof that this person or this teaching comes from God. Be very careful. Do the right thing. And finally, build your life the right way by practicing the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the issue. Chapter 5, verse 1. Look at it there. Chapter 5, verse 1. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. What does this righteousness look like? Look at verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven. Do you have that kind of perfection today? Religious friend? Maybe you've grown up in Baptistic fundamentalism. But if today your life is built on anything except the perfect work and atonement provided by Jesus Christ, you are still unsaved. If there is no evidence of obedience or concern for the pleasure of God, you are unsaved. If there is no concern to pray, if there is no concern to serve God in your whole heart and life, you are standing in jeopardy of still being unsaved. Jesus is saying that if you leave here this morning, still unconcerned for your own sin, still neglecting the responsibility of Jesus' authority, you are that foolish man with a house built on sin. Your time is limited. Your opportunity wins.
You know, we noted it twice in our summaries that Jesus indicted his listeners on the fact that they failed to do the will of God. What is it we're supposed to understand concerning the will of God? Well, the New Testament actually explains. It is God's will that all men repent and be saved. The Bible says, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. If you would say to me, I've been a Christian since the day I was born, my friend, you are lost. You are mistaken. Romans chapter 3 tells us that we are all under sin and in need of a Savior. The Lord is not slack, though, concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. Was long suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repent. Friends, what is it God wants from us? Well, He wants us to repent. He wants us to be saved. But even more than that, He wants us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Remember the gifts given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, all right, pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, the Christian life is not about you being better. It's about you living Christ. It's about letting Jesus Christ live in and through you. Would you stand with me for a word of prayer?